0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This episode of Pardes from Jerusalem features Rabbi Leon Morris on Parashat Mishpatim. This podcast is sponsored by Zara, Four and a Half, Jewel Scarlet, 2 and, a half, and their parents, Sasha Lippmann and Rochelle Barons, in memory of their grandfather, Jack T. Lipman, Zichrono Livracha, on his 11th Yort site, His only regret was to not have had the opportunity to meet his grandchildren. Did you know that Pardes from Jerusalem is also on Spotify? Follow us there for the weekly Parsha podcast or by visiting elmod.pardes.org. And now, Rabbi Leon Morris.
1: The essence of Judaism seems to be encapsulated by philosophers based on a broad reading of the first two of the Ten Commandments. There is one God, and God has no body. And with that as a basis of faith, we may be unnerved by reading the verses from this week's parasha, Mishpatim, when we come to Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 to 11. Vayal Moshe v'haron nadav avihu v'shivim m'ziknei Yisrael Vayiru et Elohei Yisrael raglav laTohar, and then Moses and Aaron Nadav and Avihu and seventy elders of Israel ascended, and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet there was the likeness of a pavement of sapphire, like the very sky for purity. Goes on in verse eleven to say that God did not raise God's hand against the leaders of the Israelites. And then it says, They beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. Even beyond the first two of the Ten Commandments, throughout the Torah, we have explicit references to the fact that God cannot and was not seen. In Sefer Devarim in Deuteronomy chapter four verse fifteen, we read, ki lo alechem mm-hmm. esh." For your sake, be very careful, since you saw no shape. When the eternal your God spoke to you at Horev out of the fire. When Moses asks God to see God's face in Exodus chapter thirty three verse twenty, God responds, lo et Panai, Ki lo Yerani haadam vachai. you cannot see my face, for a human being may not see me and live. Svorno on that verse Exodus thirty three twenty, says the meaning of vayomer lotu Ot, you cannot see is that your inability to see what you would like to see is not due to God depriving you personally of such an experience, but is rooted in the human being's ability to see the human being's inability to see such things. Uh, unless you had died first, and as an eye of flesh and blood can't see such things. Says Sforto, you would be fatally blinded before understanding anything that you would see. Now, this idea that living people cannot behold God might be what inspires Rashi's comment on the verse itself that we're looking at in this week's parasha now they saw the god of israel vayiru et elohe yisrael rashi says that they gazed intently and failing in this they peeped in their attempt to catch a glimpse of the supreme being and therefore they made themselves liable for the death penalty. But it was only because God did not wish to disturb the joy caused by Matan Torah, the giving of Torah, that God didn't punish them instantly, but postponed the punishment for Nadav and Avihu, and later on uh, for the 70 elders. Now, Rashi is connecting these, problematic and troubling verses from our parashah with the death of Nadav and Avihu that takes place later in the book of Exodus and with the death of a group of nobles uh, that's noted in Sefer Bamidbar in the book of Numbers. Rashi's arguing in essence that they did in fact catch a glimpse of God and that's not allowed. And one who does so is liable for the death penalty and that in fact is what happened ibn Ezra has a very different interpretation he says the meaning of vayaru and they saw is bimaran nivua they experienced this as prophecy Now Rambam, Maimonides in the Mishneh Torah, cites this verse along with many others in saying that such terminology is in accordance with the concepts of human beings who only recognize corporeal things. And since the Torah speaks in human language, and these are meant to be understood as attributes And he says specifically about our verse that God has neither form nor image, but all is a vision of prophecy and a mirage. The absolute truth of the matter is that no human mind can comprehend or is able to fathom or penetrate the essence of God. And in Maimonides' Guide for the Perplexed, in a similar way, he says that All of these instances refer to intellectual perception. They refer by no means to perception with the eye. All of these commentators attempt to explain and elucidate a very problematic set of verses. And that points us toward the problematic nature of speaking about God in any way at all. To speak about God is to use human language and to draw from the words that we have at our disposal words that when applied to God must necessarily be insufficient or even inaccurate. And here we think of the words of the psalmist in Psalm 65. L'cha Dumia Tehila." Elohim b'tzion, u'lecha yeshulam neder. The interpretation of this verse uh, that Rashi and others provide, of l'cha dumiyah is that silence is a form of praise to you. Silence is praise because, as Rashi says, there is no end to your praise And the more one praises, the more one detracts. This is what Sforno and Rambam are suggesting when they say that the Torah that speaks the language of human beings says something like they saw the God of Israel. And while that might be a highly problematic use of language, in fact, any use of language referring to God is problematic because only silence can capture the essence of God. The problem is that we cannot shape culture and convey ideals and norms to future generations through silence. We cannot convey all the values and truths that we want to impart through silence, and so. When faced with how inadequate human language is to describe God, silence does represent one way of dealing with this dilemma. The other way of addressing it is to use so many words and images to speak about God that it becomes obvious that such language is metaphor. When God is not only king, but is also shepherd, friend, lover, father, shield, and so on. We are asserting because of how many images are invoked that none of these adequately describe God, but rather are our best human attempt to use the language we have to describe what is indescribable, to convey a sense of the ineffable. This is true throughout the Sidur, throughout the liturgy, but it's especially true in Shir HaKavod, that 12th century German piyut written by Yehuda HaKhasid, the Song of Glory, that is traditionally recited on Shabbat morning at the end of the Tefillah before the open ark. And I want to, uh, this is also referred many times to by the opening words, Anim Zemirot, I shall make pleasant songs. And I want to cite the 8th and ninth line in particular. They depicted you, though you are not as they depicted, they characterized you according to your actions, your doings. Himshi barov your they allegorized you in many visions. but you are one in all depictions. And then it goes on to describe God according to a plethora of images, like an old man, on the Day of Judgment, like a young man going into battle, like a warrior. It speaks about God's right arm and God's left arm. It cites the Midrashic teaching of God wearing tefillin, uh, seeing the knot on the back of God's uh, head, tefillah. And what we see in this beautiful piyut is that There is an allowance for an expansion of images of God, which are verbal, while at the same time maintaining an extremely conservative position in not allowing any kind of physical representations of God. Moshe Halbertal, in a beautiful essay that was part of the catalog for an exhibition Many years ago at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, um, the the exhibition was called The Divine Image Depicting God in Jewish and Israeli Art. Moshe Halbertal has an essay uh, in that catalog called Of Pictures and Words, Visual and Verbal Representations. And in that essay, Halbertal asks, But why is a visual representation of God inappropriate even though a verbal representation is appropriate? A picture is meant to capture the entire essence of what is being represented. It strives to create a full representation, leaving no gaps. Not so language. A verbal description is only partial And the open spaces it leaves make language an appropriate medium for representing God. Representation in a visual medium, meanwhile, diminishes God and thereby desecrates the holy. I love this. And at the end of his essay, Halbert Hall writes, How then is it possible to create a representation that makes the sublime God present to worshipers Without desecrating, fixing, or replacing God, only through language. Implicit within the distinction between word and picture is the possibility of confronting the complexity of representing the sublime. This is a beautiful idea that helps us understand and appreciate those initial commentaries we took up on our problematic verses in this week's parasha, When the Torah says, and they beheld the God of Israel, this is a verbal representation of God, and therefore allows for a variety of interpretations, uh, many of which we, we examined. This demonstrates exactly what Halbertal is saying, that verbal description is only partial. It leaves open spaces. It allows for multi-vocality. It supports the possibility of interpretation, and that is what makes it very different than a visual picture of God. Howberthal suggests that there is a way in which language is not idolatrous by its very nature, that the openness and flexibility in the expansive, interpretive nature of language allows for representation of God in words. So silence may be praise, and remaining silent may prevent us from the kind of idolatry that's inherent in trying to say what God is, but this different approach works as well. Once we own up to the fact that verbal representations of God are not fixed, but rather fluid by definition, we allow for them, and we can hold them and embrace them, as we do with the verses from our parasha. This understanding that language in itself stands against idolatry is built into the nature of language itself. The development of the alphabet and the history of writing is a move from the concrete toward abstraction. I learned this initially through one of my teachers, Mark Ellen Wachnin, who wrote a beautiful book on this called Mysteries of the Alphabet. And he explains in the book That the development of the alphabet went from pictures of the word that it meant to represent to pictographs in which a simplified version of that picture came to represent not just that object but rather an idea to an even more abstracted representation of that picture as symbolizing just a sound. And that's the alphabet. So, for instance, if we think of the Hebrew letter bet, its original was probably a picture of a house, a bite. And that picture initially represented the word house, bite. Later on, a more stylized, simplified version of a picture of a house came to represent a wider range of what house and shelter and home might mean. And then finally, an even more simplified representation, like the letter bet, that still looks a little bit like a house, came to represent just the first sound of the word house, b, bite So Wachnin writes about this phenomenon. The history of meaning is the history of forgetting the image the history of a suppression of the visible. No doubt there are good reasons for this. In his book, Moses and Monotheism, Freud claimed that, quote, the prohibition on making an image of God, the compulsion to worship a God whom one cannot see, meant that a sensory perception was given second place to what may be called an abstract idea, a triumph of intellectuality over sensuality. Wagnin goes on, after quoting Freud, to say the prohibition on graven images also applied to writing and the letters. The fact that images could not be depicted may well have been the mechanism that caused the alphabet to change so radically from its pictographic form to the abstractions of the alphabetic form. It is not going too far to consider, as Leon Benvenisti wrote that writing was born on Sinai. Contemporary abstract expressionist art works in a similar way to how we've described language and its relationship to God. A dear colleague of mine, Rabbi Brent Spodek from Beacon, New York and a Pardes alumnus wrote a beautiful and insightful essay several years ago in which he writes, divinity is an abstract noun, almost a verb, like love or electricity. The idea of God is a representation of something much larger and elusive. We know this from the prohibitions on idolatry. It's not that we shouldn't represent the divine. It's that we can't represent the divine. If you see it in a picture, it's not the divine. He goes on to write, think of contemporary art. It's not powerful because it captures reality more accurately than a photograph. It's powerful because it indicates things which cannot be apprehended directly. I brought two examples of this that are on the source sheet. A work by Barnett Newman uh, from a series he called One Mint from 1948 and a painting by Mark Rothko from 1952. And I want to cite, in relationship to those two pieces and our topic, uh, another essay from the catalog of that wonderful exhibition from the Israel Museum. This is an essay entitled Depiction of God in Jewish and Israeli Art, written by Ronit Sorek and Sharon Weiser Ferguson there's a discussion of the way in which abstract art functions with regard to representing the divine. And in discussing Barnett Newman's piece, One Mint, on the source sheet, they write, the painting apparently expresses the artist's thoughts about divine unity, God as one unified essence, basing this idea on a deep-seated Jewish conception of the divine. And about abstraction and the sublime as artistic values that complement each other. Newman succeeded through the title of the work and one single motif in characterizing God in a way that is based on Jewish thought. And then they turn their attention to Mark Rothko. The example I gave uh, is one of many similar pieces. Uh, that he created. And they write The works of Mark Rothko show a clear affinity for the religious and artistic sublime, influenced by tradition and long standing philosophical and artistic theories. Rothko tried to create an experience of evolution and rapture in a painting lacking any definite images through the colors he used and the size of the works. He tried to reach a transparency and delicacy of color even when using oils and acrylics. His works of large proportions envelop viewers, inviting them to submerge and lose themselves. Brent Spodek suggests that we need to move from representational art to abstract impressionism to understand the way in which language functions In challenging passages like the verses that we've been focused on. If we understand those verses in a literal sense, then they are deeply problematic. But if we understand those verses to be a kind of abstract impressionist depiction meant to envelop us, to provide us with a feeling, if we understand that language itself allows for this kind of depiction because of its expansive and interpretive nature, then our discomfort subsides. We can read, They saw the God of Israel, Vayiru et Elohe Yisrael. And we can read, They beheld God, Vayechezu et Elohim. And we can understand that this verbal depiction is meant to convey how God's presence enveloped them, filled them with the sense that they were sitting at God's feet. And through that language, allow us to have something of that experience
0: as well. Thank you for downloading this podcast, a production of the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. You can also subscribe to our other podcast channels by visiting us on Spotify or online at elmod.pardes.org. Be sure to tune in next week to listen to Rabbi David Cruz as he discusses Parashat Tulma. Thanks for listening.